Run the back. Hi. Hello. And welcome back to Kraken's Cabin. It's a peaceful night after the recent storms, so thought we could spend some time this evening out here on the deck. I've lit this fire pit so we can sit and just watch the shoreline. The water's really peaceful tonight, too. And I think your favourite blanket's just there. The hot chocolate's right next to your chair as well. It's been a quiet week since we opened that safe last week. Well, as you know, it gave us more questions than answered in there. I've handed off the official papers over to the family solicitor and they're looking through it, but there's nothing in there about final plans or destinations. More just deeds, receipts, that kind of thing. And as everyone else is still convinced that he's not coming back and had him declared dead, well, I don't think they're looking too hard. Anyway. One thing that was in there, though, which I've held on to, is a small album of photos. There were mainly black and white pieces, and they were of my uncle, just in and around this cabin. It's very proud of building this place, and now that you've been here for a while, I'm sure you can understand why. There was one photo, though, of him with this woman, arms round each other. More than just friends, it seemed. I've never seen that woman before in my life, and my uncle's relationships were very private. He never married, never had kids. Said he wasn't much for settling down. This woman, though. There was a single letter just written on the back of the photo. The letter N. I don't remember anyone even in our family who it could be. Natasha, Nicola, Rolf. Anyway. I feel like we should just continue through more stories. See if there's a name that comes up in the dedications or footnotes. Maybe from there we can... Well. Let's all get ahead of ourselves. I'd hope for more of an answer in that safe, <laughs> truth be told, but... Maybe that was just my imagination. So, as the sun begins to settle over those waters and chilly wind blows over the lake, I thought we could read something a little more seasonal tonight. So, this is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Chapter 1. Marley's Ghost. Marley was dead, to begin with. There's no doubt whatsoever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it. Scrooge's name was good upon change, for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know, of my own knowledge, what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade. The wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile. My unhallowed hand shall not disturb it, or the country's done for. You will therefore permit me to repeat, empathetically, that Marley was as dead as a doornail. Scrooge knew he was dead? Of course he did. How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and he were partners for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was the sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole assign, his sole residuary legatee, his sole friend, and his sole mourner. 
and even Scrooge was not so dreadfully cut up by the sad event, but that he was an excellent man of business on the very day of the funeral, and solemnised it with an undoubted bargain. The mention of Marley's funeral brings me back to the point I started from. There is no point, and there is no doubt that Marley is dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I'm about to relate. If we were not perfectly convinced that Hamlet's father died before the play began, there'd be nothing more remarkable in his telling of that stroll at night, in an easterly wind, upon his own ramparts, than there would be in any middle-aged gentleman rashly turning out after dark in a breezy spot. Say, St Paul's churchyard, for instance, literally to astonish his son's weak mind. Scrooge never painted out old Marley's aim. There it stood, years afterwards, above the warehouse door. Scrooge and Marley. The firm was known as Scrooge and Marley. Sometimes people new to the business called it Scrooge, Scrooge, and sometimes Marley, but he answered to both names. It was all the same to him. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge. Squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping clutching covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire, secret, self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. Frosty rhyme was on his head, and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He iced his office in the dog days, and didn't thaw at one degree at Christmas. External heat and cold made little difference to Scrooge. No warmth could warm, nor wintry weather chill him. The wind that blew was bitter than he. No falling snow was more intent upon its purpose, no pelting rain less open to the entreaty. Fell weather didn't know where to have him. The heaviest rain and snow and hail and sleet could boast of the advantage over him in only one respect. They often came down handsomely, and Scrooge never did. Nobody ever stopped them in the street to say with gladsome looks, My dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what it was of clock. No man or woman ever once in all of his life inquired the way to such and such a place at Scrooge. Even the blindsman's dogs appeared to know, and when they saw him coming, would tug their owners into the doorway and up courts, and then would wag their tails as though they said, No eye at all is better than an evil eye, Dark Master. But what did Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked, to edge his way along the crowded paths of life, warning all human sympathy to keep its distance was what the knowing ones called nuts to Scrooge. Once upon a time, all the good days in the year, on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, foggy withal, and he could hear the people in the court outside, no wheezing up and down, beating their hands upon their breasts and stamping their feet upon the pavement stones to warn them. The city clocks had only just gone three, but it was quite dark already. It had not been light all day, and candles were flaring in the windows of the neighbouring offices, like ruddy smears upon the palpable brown eye. The fog came pouring in at every chink, 
and keyhole, and was so dense without that although the court was of the narrowest, the houses opposite were mere phantoms. To see the dingy cloud come drooping down, obscuring everything, one might have thought that nature lived hard by, and was burying on a large scale. The door of Scrooge's counting house was open that he might keep an eye upon his clerk, who in dismal little cell beyond, sort of tank, was copying letters. Scrooge had a very full, small fire, but the clerk's fire was so very much smaller than it looked like one coal, but he couldn't replenish it. But Scrooge kept the coal box in his own room, and so surely as the clerk came in with the shovel, the master predicted that it would be necessary for them to depart. Wherefore the clerk put on his white comforter and tried to warm himself with the candle, in which effort, not being a man of strong imagination, he failed. Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you, cried a cheerful voice. It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew, It came upon him so quickly that it was the first imitation he had of his approach. Bah, said Scrooge. Humbug. He had so heated himself with the rapid walking in the fog and frost, this nephew of Scrooge's, but he was all the glow. His face was ruddy and handsome, his eyes sparkled, and his breath smoked again. Christmas a humbug, uncle, said Scrooge's nephew. You don't mean that, I'm sure. I do, said Scrooge. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? Per enough. Come then, returned the nephew gaily. What right have you to be so dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Scrooge, having no better answer ready on the spur of the moment, said, Bah, again. And followed it up with humbug. Don't be cross, uncle, said the nephew. What else can I be? returned the uncle. When I live in such a world of fools as this. Merry Christmas. Out upon Merry Christmas. It's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money. Time for finding yourself a year older and not an hour richer. Time for balancing your books and having every item in them through a round dozen of miles presented dead against you. If I could work my will, said Scrooge indignantly, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. He should. Uncle, pleaded the nephew. Nephew, returned the uncle sternly. Keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. Keep it? turned Scrooge's nephew. You don't keep it. Let me leave it alone then, said Scrooge. Much good may it do you. Much good it has ever done you. There are many things from which I have derived good, of which I have not profited, I dare say, returned the nephew. Christmas among the rest. But I'm sure I've always thought of Christmas time, when it's come round, apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin. If anything belonging to it can be apart from that, as good a time as kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. The only time I know of, in the long calendar of the year, when men and women by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely, to think of people below them as if they were really were fellow passengers to the grave, and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. Therefore, uncle, though there's never been a scrap of gold or silver on my pocket, I believe it has done something good. And will do me good, I say. God bless it. The clerk in the tank involuntarily applauded. Being immediately sensible of the impropriety, he poked the fire and extinguished the last frail spark forever. 
Let me hear another sound from you, said Scrooge. You'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite a powerful speaker, sir, he added, turning to his nephew. Wonder you don't go to Parliament. Don't be angry, uncle. Come, dine with us tomorrow. Scrooge said that he would see him. Yes, indeed he did. With the whole length of the expression, he said that he would see him in that extremity first. But why? cried Scrooge's nephew. Why? Why did you have to get married? said Scrooge. Because I fell in love. Because you fell in love, growled Scrooge, as if that were the only thing in the world more ridiculous than Merry Christmas. Good afternoon. Nay, uncle. You've never come to see me before that happened. Why give it reason for not coming now? Good afternoon, said Scrooge. I want nothing from you. I ask nothing of you. Why can we not be friends? Good afternoon, said Scrooge. I'm sorry, with all of my heart, to find you so resolute. We've never had any quarrel, to which I've been a party. But I've made the trial an homage to Christmas, and I'll keep my Christmas humour to the last. So, a Merry Christmas, Uncle. Good afternoon, said Scrooge. And a Happy New Year. Good afternoon, said Scrooge. His nephew left the room without an angry word, notwithstanding. He stopped at the other door to bestow the greetings of the season on the clerk, who, cold as he was, was warmer than Scrooge, for he returned them cordially. There is another fellow, muttered Scrooge, who overheard him, my clerk, with fifteen shillings a week, and a wife and a family talking about a merry Christmas. I'll retire to Bedlam. This lunatic, and letting Scrooge's nephew out, had let two other people in. They were portly gentlemen, pleasant to behold, and now stood with their hats off in Scrooge's office. They had books and papers in their hands and bowed to him. Scrooge and Marley's, I believe, said one of the gentlemen, referring to his list. Have I the pleasure in addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley? Mr. Marley's been dead these last seven years, Scrooge replied. He died seven years ago, this very night. We've no doubt about his liberality as well represented by his surviving partner said the gentleman, resenting his credentials. It certainly was, for there had been two kindred spirits. The ominous word liberality, Scrooge frowned though, and shook his head, and handed the credentials back. At this festive season of the year, Mr Scrooge, said the gentleman, taking up a pen, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some light provision for the poor and the destitute, who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are a want of common necessities. Hundreds of thousands are a want of common comfort, sir. Are there no prisons? asked Scrooge. Plenty of prisons, said the gentleman, laying down the pen again. And the Union workhouses? demanded Scrooge. Are they still in operation? They are, still, returned the gentleman. I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill and the pearl are in full vigour, then, said Scrooge. Both very busy, sir. Oh, I was afraid from what you'd said at first that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course, said Scrooge. Very glad to hear it. Under the impression that this scarcely furnished Christian cheer of mind or body to the multitude, returned the gentleman, a few of us are endeavouring to raise a hand to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. We choose this time because it is a time, of all others, when want is keenly felt and abundance rejoices. 
What shall I put you down for? Nothing, Scrooge replied. You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone, said Scrooge. Tis you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, and that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the establishments I've mentioned. They cost enough. And those who are badly off must go there. And he can't go there. And many would rather die. Well, if they would rather die, said Scrooge, they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. Besides, excuse me, I don't know that. But you might know it, observed the gentleman. It's not my business, Scrooge returned. It's enough for a man to understand his own business and not interfere with other people's. Mine occupies me constantly. So, good afternoon, gentlemen. Seeing clearly that it would be useless to pursue the point, the gentleman withdrew. Scrooge resumed his labours with an improvised opinion of himself, and a more facetious temper than was usual with him. Meanwhile, the fog and darkness thickened so that the people about with their flurry links, referring their services to the four carriages, conducted them on their way. The ancient tower of the church, whose gruff old hell was always peeping silently down at Scrooge out of a gothic window on the wall, became invisible, and struck the hours and the quarters of the clouds with their tremulous vibrations afterwards, as if its teeth were clattering in the frozen head up there. The cold became intent. In the mean street, corner of the court, some neighbours were repairing the gas pipes and had lighted a great fire in a brazier, round which a party of ragged men and boys were gathered, warming their hands and winking their eyes before the blaze in rapture. The water plug being left in solitude, so were flowing suddenly congealed and turned to misanthropic ice. Brightness of the shops where holly sprigs and berries crackled and the lamp heat of the windows made pale faces ruddy as they passed. Poulterers and grocer's trades became a splendid joke, a glorious pageant, with which it was next to impossible to believe that such dull principles as bargain and sale had anything to do. The Lord Mayor, in the stronghold of the mighty mansion house, gave orders to his fifty cooks and butlers to keep Christmas as a Lord Mayor's household should, and even the little tailor, whom he had fined five shillings on the previous Monday for being drunk and bloodthirsty in the streets, stirred up tomorrow's pudding in his garret, while his lean wife and the bailey sallied out to buy the beef. Foggier yet, colder, piercing, searching, biting cold. The good scene Dustin had but nipped the evil spirit's nose with a touch of such weather as that, instead of using his familiar weapons, then indeed he would have roared to a lusty purpose. The owner of one scant young nose gnawed and mumbled by the hungry cold, his bones are gnawed by dogs, stooped down at Scrooge's keyhole to regale him with a Christmas carol. But at the first sound of God bless you, merry gentlemen, may nothing you dismay. Scrooge seized the ruler with such energy of action that the singer fled in terror, leaving the keyhole to the fog and even more congenial frost. At first, the hour of shutting up the counting house arrived, and with an ill will, Scrooge dismounted from his stool and tacitly admitted the fact to the expectant clerk in the tank, who admittedly and instantly snuffed his candlelight and put out on his hat. You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose, said Scrooge. If quite convenient, sir. It's not convenient, said Scrooge, and it's not fair. If I was to stop half a crown for it, you'd think yourself ill-used and ill-bound, I'm sure. Clerk smiled faintly. And yet, said Scrooge, you don't think me ill-used, 
when I pay a day's wages for no work. The clerk observed that it was only once a year. A poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December, said Scrooge, buttoning his great coat to the chin. But I suppose you must have the whole day. Be here earlier the next morning. The clerk promised that he would, and Scrooge walked out with such a crowd. The office was closed in a twinkling, and the clerk, with the long ends of his white comforter dangling below his waist, for he boasted no great coat, went down a slide on Cornhill, the end of the lane of boys twenty times in honour of it being Christmas Eve, and then ran home to Camden Town as hard as he could pelt, pay at Blind Man's Bluff. Scrooge took his melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern, and having read all of the newspapers and beguiled the rest of the evening with his banker's book, went home to bed. He lived in chambers with which once belonged to his deceased partner. There were a gloomy suite of rooms in the lowering pile of building up in the yard, which had so little business to be that one could scarcely help fancying it must have run to where there was a young house, playing at hide-and-seek with the other houses and forgotten the way out again. It was old enough now, and dreary enough, for nobody lived in it but Scrooge, and the other rooms being all let out as offices. The yard was so dark that even Scrooge knew in every stone was fain to grope with his hands. The fog and frost so hung about the black old gateway of the house that it seemed as if a genius of the weather sat in his mournful medication on the threshold. Now, it is a fact that there is nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door, except that it was very large. It's also a fact that Scrooge had seen it night and morning during his whole residence in that place. And also that Scrooge had as little of what was called fancy about him as any man in the city of London. Even including, which is a bold word, the corporation, aldermen and livery. Yet it also bore in mind that Scrooge had not bestowed one thought on Marley since his last mention in seven years' dead partner that afternoon. And then let any man explain to me, if he can, how it happened that Scrooge, having his key in the lock of the door, saw him the knocker, without its undergoing any intermediate process of change, that it was not a knocker, but Marley's face. Marley's face was not an impenetrable shallow as the other objects in the yard were, but had a dismal light about it, like a bad lobster in a dark cellar. It was not angry or ferocious, but looked at Scrooge as Marley used to look, ghostly spectacles turned up upon its ghostly forehead. The hair was curiously stirred, as if by breath or hot air, and though the eyes were wide open, they were perfectly motionless. That, in its livid colour, made it horrible. But its horror seemed to be, in spite of the face and beyond its control, rather than a part of its own expression. The Scrooge looked fixedly at the phenomenon. It was a knocker again. To say that he was not startled, that his blood was not conscious of the terrible sensation to which it had been a stranger from infancy, would be untrue. But he put his hand upon the key that he had relinquished, turned it sturdily, walked in, and lighted his candle. He did pause with a moment's solution before he shut the door, and he did look cautiously behind it first, as if he half expected to be terrified with the sight of Marley's pigtail sticking out into the hall. But there was nothing on the back of the door, except the screws and nuts that held the knocker on. So, he said, humbug, and closed it with a bang. The sun resounded through the house like thunder. 
Every room above and every cask in the wine merchant's cellars below appeared to have a separate peal of echoes of its own. Scrooge was not a man to be frightened by echoes. He fastened the door and walked across the hall, up the stairs. Slowly, too, trimming his candle as he went. You may talk vaguely about driving a coach and six up a good flight of stairs, or through a very bad young act of parliament. But I mean to say, you might not have got a hearse up that staircase and taken it broadwise, with the splinter bar towards the hall, and the door towards the balustrades, and done it easy. There was plenty of woods for that, and room to spare, which is perhaps the reason why Scrooge thought he saw a locomotive hearse going on before him in the gloom. Half a dozen gas lamps out on the street wouldn't have lighted the entry so well, so you may suppose that it was pretty dark with Scrooge's dip. Up Scrooge went, not carrying a button for that. Darkness is cheap, and Scrooge liked it. But before he shut his heavy door, he walked through his rooms to see that all was right. He had just enough recollection of the face to desire to do just that. Sitting room, bedroom, lumber room. All as they should be. Nobody under the table, nobody under the sofa. A small fire in the grate. Spoon and basin ready. And the little saucepan of gruel. Scrooge had a cold in his head. Upon a hop. Nobody under the bed. Nobody under the closet. Nobody in the dressing gown. Which was hanging up in a suspicious attitude against the wall. Lumber room as usual. Old fire guard. Old shoes. Two fish baskets. Washing stand on three legs. And a poker. Quite satisfied, he closed his door and locked himself in. Double locked himself in, which was not his custom. Thus secured against surprise, he took off his cravat, put down his dressing gown and slippers and his nightcap, and sat down before the fire to take his gruel. It was a very low fire indeed, nothing on such a bitter night. He was obligated to sit close to it and brood over it before he could extract the least sensation of warmth from such a handful of fuel. The fireplace was an old one, built by some Dutch merchant long ago, and paved all round with quaint Dutch tiles designed to illustrate the sculptures. There were Keens and Abels, Pharaoh's daughters, Queens of Sheba, angelic messengers descending through the air on clouds like feather beds, Abrahams, Balthazars, apostles putting off the sea in butter boats, hundreds of figures to attract his thoughts, and yet the face of Marley, seven years dead, came like the ancient prophet's rod, and swallowed up the hull. If each smooth tile had been a blank at first, with the power to shape some picture on the surface from the disjointed fragments of his thoughts, there would have been a copy of old Marley's head on every stone. Humbug, said Scrooge, and he walked across the room. After several turns, he sat down again. As he threw his head back in the chair, he glanced happened to rest upon a bell, a disused bell, that hung in the room, communicated for some purpose now forgotten with a chamber in the high story of the building. It was with great astonishment, and with a strange, inexplicable dread that he looked, and he saw this bell began to swing. It swung so softly in the outset that it scarcely made a sound, but soon it rang out loudly, and so did every bell in the house. This might have lasted half a minute, or a minute, but it seemed like an hour. The bell ceased as they had begun, together. They were succeeded by a clanking noise, deep down below, as if some person were dragging a heavy chain over the casks in the wine merchant's cellar. 
Scrooge then remembered to have heard that ghosts in haunted houses were described as having dragging chains. The cellar door flew open with a booming sound, and then he heard the noise much louder, and the floors below, and coming up the stairs, coming straight towards his door. It's humbug still, said Scrooge. I won't believe it. His colour changed, though, and when, without a pause, he came upon the heavy door, and passed into the room before his very eyes. Upon its coming in, the dying flame leaped up, as though it cried, I know him! Marley's ghost! It fell again. Same face. The very same. Marley in his pigtail, usual waistcoat, tights and boots, the tassels on his ladder bristling like his pigtail, his coat skirts, and the hair upon his head. The chain he drew with clasped around his middle. It was long and wound about him like a tail. And it was made, for Scrooge observed it closely. Cash boxes and keys, padlocks and ledgers, deeds and heavy purses wrought in steel. His body was transparent, so that Scrooge, observing him, and looking through his waistcoat, could see the two buttons on his coat behind. Scrooge had often heard it said that Marley had no bowels, but he had never believed it until now. Nor did he even believe it even now. Though he looked at the phantom through and through and saw it standing before him, and though he felt the chilling influence of its death-cold eyes, and marked the very texture of the folded handkerchief bound about its head and chin, which Rapper had not observed before he was still incredulous and fought against his senses. How now? said Scrooge, caustic and cold as ever. What do you want with me? Much, Marty's voice, no doubt about it. Who were you? Ask who I was. Who were you then? said Scrooge, raising his voice. You're particular for a shade. He was going to say to a shade, but substituted this as it was more appropriate. In life, I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Can you, can you sit down? Asked Scrooge, looking doubtfully at him. I can't. Do it then. Scrooge asked the question, because he didn't know whether a ghost so transparent might even find himself in a condition to take a chair, and felt that in the event of its being impossible, it might improve the necessity of an embarrassing explanation. The ghost sat down on the opposite side of the fireplace, as if he were quite used to it. You don't believe in me, observed the ghost. I don't, said Scrooge. What evidence would you have of my reality, beyond that of your senses? I don't know, said Scrooge. Then why do you doubt your senses? Because, said Scrooge, a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheap. You might be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. Scrooge was not in the habit of cracking jokes, nor did he feel in his heart by any means waggish then. The truth is that he tried to be smart as a means of distracting his own attention and keeping down his terror, for the spectre's voice disturbed the very marrow to his bones. To sit, staring at those fixed, glazed eyes in silence for a moment would play, Scrooge felt the very juice with him. Something very awful, too, in the spectre's being provided with an infernal atmosphere of its own. Scrooge could not feel it himself, but this was clearly the case. For though the ghost sat perfectly motionless, the terror 
skirts and tassels were still agitated by the hot vapour from an oven. You see this toothpick, said Scrooge, turning quickly to the charge, for the reason just assigned and wishing, that were only for a second, to divert the vision Stony gaze from himself. I do, replied the ghost. You're not looking at it, said Scrooge. But I see it, said the ghost, notwithstanding. Well, returned Scrooge, I've but to swallow this, and be for the rest of my days persecuted by a legion of goblins, all of my own creation. Humbug, I tell you, humbug. At this, the spirit raised a frightful cry, and shook its chain with such dismal and appalling noise that Scrooge held on right to his chair, to save himself from falling in the swoon. But how much greater was his horror, the phantom taking off the bandage around its head, as if it were too warm to wear indoors, and lower jaws dropped down upon its breast. Scrooge fell upon his knees and clasped his hands before his face. Mercy, he said. Dreadful apparition, why do you trouble me? Man of worldly mind, replied the ghost. Do you believe me? Or not? I do, said Scrooge. I must. But why do spirits walk the earth? Why do they come to me? It is required of every man, the ghost returned, that the spirit within him should walk abroad amongst his fellow men, and travel far and wide. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the world. Oh, woe is me. And when this what I cannot share, but might have shared on earth, and turned into happiness. Again the spectre raised a cry and shook its chain and wrung its shadowy hands. You're fettered, said Scrooge, trembling. Tell me why. I wore the chain I forged in life, replied the ghost. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it of my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it. Is its pattern strange to you? Scrooge trembled more and more. Or would you know, pursued the ghost, the weight and the length of the strong coil you bear yourself. It was full and heavy and as long as this, seven Christmas Eves ago, and you've laboured on it since. It is a ponderous chain. Scrooge glanced about him on the floor, and in the expectation of finding himself surrounded by some fifty or sixty fathoms of iron cable, but he could see nothing. Jacob, he said imploringly, Oh, Jacob Marley, tell me more. Speak comfort to me, Jacob. I've none to give, the ghost replied. It comes from other regions. Ebenezer Scrooge. And it is conveyed by other ministers to other kinds of men. Nor can I tell you what I would. Very little more is all permitted to me. I cannot rest. I cannot stay. And I cannot linger anymore. My spirit never walked beyond our counting house. Mark me. And in life my spirit never moved beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing hole, and weary journeys lie before me. It was a habit with Scrooge, whenever he became thoughtful, put his hands in his breeches' pockets, pondering on what the ghost had said. And he did so now, but without lifting up his eyes, or getting off his knees. He must have been very slow about it, Jacob, Scrooge observed, in a very businesslike manner, though with humility and deference. Slow, the ghost repeated. Seven years dead, you Scrooge, and travelling all the time? The whole time, said the ghost. No rest, no peace, incessant torture of remorse. You travel fast, said Scrooge. On the wings of the dead, replied the ghost. 
Bad I got over a great quantity of ground in seven years, said Scrooge. The ghost, on hearing this, set up another cry, and clanked its chain so hideously in the dead silence of the night that the ward would have been justified in indicting it for a nuisance. Oh, captive, bound, and double-ironed, cried the phantom, not to know that the ages of incessant labour by mortal creatures, for this earth must pass into eternity before the good with which its susceptible is all developed, not to know that any Christian spirit working kindly in this little sphere, whatever it might be, will find its mortal life too short for the vast means of usefulness, not to know that no space of regret can make amends for one's life's opportunity misused. Yet such was I. Oh, such was I. But you're always a good man of business, Jacob, faltered Scrooge, who now began to apply this to himself. Business, cried the ghost, wringing its hands again. Mankind was my business. Common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all in my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. It held up its chain at arm's length, as if it were the cause of all its unavailing grief, and flung it heavily upon the ground again. At this time of the rolling year, Spectre said, I suffer most. Why did I walk through crowds of fellow beings with my eyes turned down, and never raise them to that blessed star with which the wise men to her abode? Were there no poor homes to which its light might have conducted to me? Scrooge was very much dispaid to hear the spectre going on at this rate, and began to quake exceedingly. Hear me, cried the ghost. My time is nearly gone. I will, said Scrooge, but don't be hard upon me. Don't be flowery, Jacob. Pray. How it is that I appear before you in a shape that you can see, I may not tell. I have sat invisible beside you many and many a day. It's not an agreeable idea. Scrooge shivered and wiped the perspiration from his brow. That is no light part of my penance, pursued the ghost. I'm here tonight to warn you that you have a chance and a hope of escaping my fate. A chance and hope of my procuring, Ebenezer. You're always a good friend to me, said Scrooge. Thank you. You will be haunted, resumed the ghost, by three spirits. Scrooge's countenance fell almost as low as the ghost had done. Is that the chance and the hope you'd mentioned, Jacob? He demanded in a faltering voice. It is. I, I think I'd rather not, said Scrooge. Without their visits, said the ghost, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Expect the first ghost tomorrow, when the bell tolls one. Can't I take them all at once and have it over, Jacob? hinted Scrooge. Expect the second on the next night, same hour. The third upon the next night when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. Look to me no more. I'll look that, for your own sake, you remember what has passed between us. When it said these words, the spectre took its wrapper from the table and bound it round its head as before. Scrooge knew this by the smart sound its teeth made, and the jaws were brought together by the bandage. He ventured to raise his eyes again and found a supernatural visitor confronting him in an erect attitude, with his chain wound over and about its arm. The apparition walked backward from him, and at every step it took, the window raised itself a little, so that when the spectre reached it, it was wide open. I beckoned Scrooge to approach, which he did. 
When they were within two paces of each other, Marley's ghost held up its hand, warning him to come no nearer. Scrooge stopped. Not so much in obedience as in surprise and fear. From the raising of the hand, he became sensible of a confused noise in the air. Incoherent sounds of lamentation and regret, wailings inexpressively sorrowful and self-accusatory. The spectre, after listening for a moment, joined in its mournful dirge and floated out into the bleak, dark night. Scrooge followed to the window, desperate in his curiosity, and looked out. They are filled with phantoms, wandering hither and thither in restless haste, and moaning as they went. Every one of them wore chains like Marley's ghost. Some few, that might be guilty governments, were linked together. None were free. Many had been personally known to Scrooge in their lives, been quite familiar with one old ghost in a white waistcoat, with monstrous iron safe attached to his ankle, cried piteously at being unable to assist a wretched woman with an infant, whom it saw below upon a doorstep. The misery with them all was clearly that they sought to interfere for good in the human matters, but had lost their power forever. Whether these creatures faded into the mist or the mist enshrouded them, he could not tell, but they and their spirit voices faded together, and the night came as it had been when he'd walked home. Scrooge closed the window and examined the door by which the ghost had entered. It was double locked, as he had locked it with his own hands, and the bolts were undisturbed. He tried to say humbug, but stopped at the first syllable. And being from the emotion that he had undergone, or the fatigues of the day, or his glimpse of the invisible world, or his dull conversation of the ghost, or the lateness hour of the hour, much in need of repose. Scrooge went straight to bed, without undressing, and fell asleep upon the instant. Chapter 2. The First of the Three Spirits When Scrooge awoke, it was so dark that looking out of bed he could scarcely distinguish the transparent window from the opaque walls of his chamber. He was endeavouring to pierce the darkness with his ferret eyes when the chimes of a neighbouring church struck the four quarters. So he listened for the hour. To his great astonishment, the heavy bell went on from six to seven, from seven to eight, and regularly up to twelve, and then stopped. Twelve? It was past two when he went to bed. Clock must be wrong. An icicle must have got into the works. Twelve? He touched the spring of his repeater to correct this most preposterous clock. This rapid little pulse beat twelve and stopped. Why? It is impossible, said Scrooge, that I can have slept through a whole day and far into another night. It is impossible that anything has happened to the sun and that this is twelve o'clock at noon. The idea being an alarming one, he scrambled out of bed and groped his way to the window. He was obliged to rub the frost off with the sleeve of his dressing gown before he could see anything and could see very little even then. All he could make out was that it was still very foggy and extremely cold and that there was no noise of people running to and fro and making a great stir, as there unquestionably would have been if the night had beaten off bright day and taken possession of the world. This was a great relief, because three days after sight of this first of the exchange paid to Mr. Ebenezer Scrooge or his order, and so forth, would have been become a mere United States security, if there were no days to count by. Scrooge went to bed again, and thought, and thought, and thought it over and over and over, could make nothing of it. The more he thought, the more perplexed he was. 
and the more he endeavoured not to think, the more he thought. Marla's ghost bothered him exceedingly. Every time he resolved within himself, after mature inquiry, that it was all a dream, his mind flew back again, like a strong spring release, to the first position, and presented the same problem to be worked all through again. Was it a dream, or not? Scrooge lay in this state until the chimes had gone three quarters more, when he remembered all of a sudden that the ghost had warned him of a visitation when the bell struck one. He resolved to lie awake until the hour was past, and, considering that he could do no more go to sleep than go to heaven, was perhaps the wisest resolution in his power. The quarter was so long that he was more than once convinced that he must have sunk into a doze unconsciously and missed the clock. At length, it broke upon his listening ear. Ding, down. A quarter past, said Scrooge, counting. Ding, down. Half past, said Scrooge. Ding, down. Quarter to it, said Scrooge. Ding, down. And the hour itself, said Scrooge, triumphantly, and nothing else. He spoke before the hour bell sounded, which it now did with a deep, dull, hollow, melancholy ask. Light flashed up in the room upon the instant, and the curtains of his bed were drawn. The curtains of his bed were drawn aside, I tell you, by a hand. Not the curtains at his feet, or the curtains at his back, those to which his face was addressed. The curtains of his bed were drawn aside, and Scrooge, starting up into a half-recumbent attitude, found himself face to face with the unearthly visitor who drew him. As close to it as I am to you, and I am standing in the spirit at your elbow. It was a strange feature, like a child. Yet not so like a child as like an old man, viewed through some supernatural medium, which gave him the appearance of having receded from the view, and having diminished to a child's proportions. Its hair, which hung about its neck and drawn its back, was white as if with age, and yet the face had not a wrinkle in it, and the tenderest bloom was on the skin. The arms were very long and muscular, the hands the same, as if its hold were of uncommon strength. Its legs and feet, most delicately formed, were, like those upper members, there. It wore a tunic of purest white, and round its waist was bound a lustrous belt, the sheen of which was beautiful. It held a branch of fresh green holly in its hand, and a singular contradiction of that wintry album, had in its dress trimmed with summer flowers. But the strangest thing about it was that the crown on its head there sprung a bright, clear jet of light, by which all was thus invisible, and which was doubtless the occasion of its using, in its duller moments, a great extinguisher for a cat, which it now held under its arm. Even this, though, when Scrooge looked about it with increasing steadiness, was not the strangest quality. For as its belt sparkled and glittered now one part and now the other, and what was light one instant and another time dark, so that the figure itself fluctuated in its distinctness, being now a thing with one arm, now with one leg, now with twenty legs, and now with a pair of legs without a head, now a head without a body, dissolving parts. No outline would be visible in the dense gloom wherein they melted away, and in the very wonder of this, it would be itself again, distinct and clear as ever. Are you the spirit, sir, whose coming was first told to me? asked Scrooge. I am. 
The voice was soft and gentle, singularly low, as if instead of being so close beside him, they were at a distance. Who and what are you? Scrooge demanded. I am the ghost of Christmas past. Long past? inquired Scrooge, observant of its dwarfish nature. No, your past. Perhaps Scrooge could not have told anybody why, if anybody could have asked him, but he had a strange special desire to see the spirit in its cap and begged him to be covered. What? exclaimed the ghost. Do you so soon put out with worldly hands the light I gave? It's not enough that you are one of those whose passions made this cap and forced me through the whole trains of years to wear it low upon my brow. Scrooge reverently disclaimed all intention to offend or any knowledge of having willfully bonneted the spirit at any period of his life. He then meant bold to inquire what business brought him there. Your welfare, said the ghost. Scrooge expressed himself much obliged, but could not help thinking that a night of unbroken rest would have been more conductive to that end. The spirit must have heard him thinking, for it said immediately, Your reclamation, then. Take it. It put out its strong hand as it spoke and clasped him gently by the arm. Rise, walk with me. It would have been in vain for Scrooge to plead that the weather and the hour were not adapted to pedestrian purposes, that the bed was warm, the thermometer a long way below freezing, that he was clad but lightly in his slippers, dressing gown and nightcap, and that he had a cold upon him at that time. The grasp, though gentle as a woman's hand, was not so to be resisted. He rose, but finding that the spirit made towards the window clasped its robe in supplication. I am a mortal, Scrooge remonstrated, and liable to fall. Bear but a touch of my hand there, said the spirit, laying it upon his heart. You should be uplifted in more than this. As the words were spoken, they passed through the wall, and stood upon an open country road, with fields on either hand. The city itself had entirely vanished, and not a vestige of it was to be seen. The darkness and the mist had vanished with it, for it was a cold, clear winter day, snow upon the ground. Good heavens, said Scrooge, clasping his hands together as he looked upon him. I was bred in this place. I was but a boy here. The spirit gazed at him idly. His gentle touch, though it had been light and instantaneous, appeared still present to the old man's sense of feeling. He was conscious of a thousand odours floating in the air, each one connected with a thousand thoughts and hopes and joys and cares long, long forgotten. Your lip is trembling, said the ghost. And what is that upon your cheek? Scrooge muttered, with the usual catching in his voice, that it was a pimple and begged the ghost to lead him where it would. You recollect the way, inquired the spirit. Remember it, cried Scrooge with fervour. Could walk it blindfold. Strange to have forgotten it then for so many years, observed the ghost. Let us go on. They walked along the road, Scrooge recognising every gate and post and tree, until little Marketan appeared in the distance with his bridge, his church and his winding river. Some shaggy ponies now were seen trotting towards them with boys upon their backs, who called the other boys in country gigs and carts driven by farmers. All these boys were in great spirits and shouted to each other, till the bread fields were so full of merry music that the crisp air laughed to hear it. These are but shadows of the things that you have seen, said the ghost. They have no consciousness of us. The merry travellers came on, and as they came, Scrooge knew and named every one of them. Why? 
was he rejoiced beyond all bounds to see them. Why did this cold eye glisten and his heart leap up as they went past? Why was he filled with gladness when he heard them give each other Merry Christmas as they parted at crossroads and byways for their several homes? What was Merry Christmas to Scrooge? Out upon Merry Christmas, what good has it ever done for him? The school's not quite deserted, said the ghost. A solitary child, neglected by his friends, is left there still. Scrooge said he knew it, and he sobbed. They left the high road, by a well-remembered lean, and soon approached a mansion of dull red brick, with a little weathercock surmounted cupola on the roof, and a bell hanging upon it. It was a large house, but one of those broken fortunes, for the spacious offices were little used, their walls were damp and mossy, their windows broken and their gates decayed. Fowls chuckled and strutted in the stables, and the coach houses and sheds were overrun with grass. Nor was it more retentive of the sage and state within for entering the dreary hall and glancing through the open doors of many rooms. They found them pretty furnished, cold and vast. There was an earthly savour in the air, a chilly burnous in that place, which associated itself somehow with too much getting up by candlelight and not so much to eat. They went, the ghost and Scrooge, across the hall, to a door at the back of the house. It was opened before them, and disclosed a long, bare, melancholy room, made bare still by the lines of plain deal forms and desks. On one of these, a lonely boy was reading near a feeble fire, and Scrooge sat down upon the form, and wept to see his purr, forgotten self as he had used to be. Not a latent echo in the house, not a squeak and a scuffle from the mice behind the panelling, not a drop from the hall-thawed wall, or the water spout in the dull yard behind not a sigh among the leafless boughs of its despondent poplar, of the idle swinging of an empty storehouse door. No, not a clicking in the fire, but fell upon him the heart of Scrooge, with softening influence, and gave a freer passage to his tears. Despair touched him on the arm, and pointed to his younger self, tent upon his reading. Suddenly a man in foreign garments, wonderfully real and distinct to look at, stood outside the window, with an axe stuck in his belt, and leading an ass laden with wood by the bridle. Why, it's Ali Baba! Scrooge exclaimed in ecstasy. His dear old honest Ali Baba. Yes, yes, I know. One Christmas time, when yonder sultry child was left there all alone, he did come, for the first time, just like that. Poor boy. And Valentine, said Scrooge. And his wild brother Orson, there they go. And what's his name? He was put down in his drawers asleep at the gate of Damascus. Don't you see him? And the Sultan's groom turned upside down by the genie. There he is upon his head. Serve him right. I'm glad of it. What business had he to be married to the princess? Here Scrooge expanding all of the earnestness of his nature on such subjects, in a most extraordinary voice between laughing and crying, and to see his heightened and excited face would have been a surprise to his business friends in the city. There's a parrot cried Scrooge. Green body and yellow tail, with a thing like a lettuce growing out of the top of his head. There he is. Per Robin Crusoe, he called him, when he came home again after sailing round the world. Per Robin Crusoe, where have you been, Robin Crusoe? The man thought he was dreaming, but he wasn't. It was the parrot, you know. There goes Friday, running for his life to his little creek. Then, 
with a rapidity of transition very foreign to his usual character. He said in pity for his former self, Poor boy. And began to cry again. I wish, Scrooge muttered, putting his hand in his pocket and looking about him after drying his eyes with his cuff. But it's too late now. What's the matter? asked the spirit. Nothing, said Scrooge, nothing. There was a boy singing a Christmas carol at my door last night. I should like to have given him something, that's all. The ghost smiled thoughtfully and waved its hand, saying as it did so, Let us see another Christmas. Scrooge's former self grew larger at the words, and the room became a little darker and more dirty. The panels shrunk, the windows cracked, fragments of plaster fell out of the ceiling and the naked lace were shown instead. But how all this was brought about, Scrooge knew no more than you do. He only knew that it was quite correct, that everything had happened so, that there he was, alone again, when all the other boys had gone home for the jolly holidays. He was not reading now, but walking up and down despairingly. Scrooge looked at the ghost, and with a mournful shaking of his head, glanced anxiously towards the door. It opened, and a little girl, much younger than the boy, came darting in, and putting her arms around his neck and often kissing him and dressed him as her dear, dear brother. I come to bring you home, dear brother, said the child, clapping her tiny hands and bending down the laugh. To bring you home, home, home. Home, little fan, returned the boy. Yes, said the child, brimful of glee. Home, for the good and for all. Home, forever and ever. Father is so much kinder than he used to be, that home's like heaven. He spoke so gently to me one dear night when I was going to bed, that I was not afraid to ask him once more if you might come home. And he said, yes, you should and sent me in a coach to bring you. And you're so to be a man, said the child, opening her eyes. And you're never to come back here. But first, we're to be together all the Christmas long, and have the merriest time in all of the world. You're quite a woman, little fair, exclaimed the boy. She clapped her hands and laughed, and tried to touch his head. But being too little, laughed again, and stood on tiptoe to embrace him. And she began to drag him, in her childish eagerness, towards the door. And he... Nothing else to go. Accompanied her. A terrible voice in the hall cried, Bring down Master Scrooge's box there. And in the hall appeared the schoolmaster himself, who glared on as Master Scrooge with a ferocious condensation and threw him into a dreadful state of mind by shaking hands with him. He then conveyed him and his sister into the veriest old well of the shivering best parlour that ever was seen, with the maps upon the wall and the celestial and terrestrial globes in the world were waxy with cold. Here he produced a decanter of curiously light wine, and a block of curiously heavy cake, and administered instalments of these dainties to the young people, at the same time sending out a meagre servant to offer a glass of something to the postboy. He answered that he thanked the gentleman, but it was not the same tap as he had tasted before. He'd rather not. Master Scrooge's trunk by this time being tied to the top of the chase, and the children bade the schoolmaster goodbye right willingly, and getting into it drove gaily down the garden sweep, the quick wheels dashing the hoar-frost and snow from off the dark leaves of the evergreens like spring. Always a delicate creature, whom a breath might have withered, said the ghost. But she had a large heart. So she had, cried Scrooge. You're right, I'll not gainsay it, spirit, God forbid. She died a woman, said the ghost, and had, as I think, children. One child, Scrooge returned. True, said the ghost. Your nephew. 
Scrooge seemed uneasy in his mind and answered briefly, Yes. Although they had but that moment left the school behind them, they were now on the busy thoroughfares of his city, with the shadowy passengers passed and repassed, where shadowy carts and coaches battled for the way, and all of the strife and tumult of a real city there. It was made plain enough by the dressing of the shops that here too it was Christmas time again, but it was evening, and the shops were lighted up. The ghost stopped at a certain warehouse door and asked Scrooge if he knew it. Knew it, said Scrooge. Why? I was apprenticed here. They went in. At the sight of an old gentleman in a Welsh wig, sitting behind such a high desk that if he had been two inches taller he might have knocked his head against the ceiling, Scrooge cried in great excitement. Why? It's old Fezziwig. Bless his heart. It's Fezziwig, alive again. Old Fezziwig laid down his pen and looked up at the clock, which pointed to the hour of seven. He rubbed his hands, adjusted his capacious waistcoat, laughed all over himself from his shoes to his organ of benevolence, and called out in a comfortable, oily, rich, fat, jovial voice. Yo-ho there, Ebenezer. Dick. Scrooge's former self, now grown a young man, came briskly in, accompanied by his fellow apprentice. Dick Wilkins, to be sure, said Scrooge to the ghost. Bless me, yes, there he is. He was very much attached to me, was Dick. Per Dick. Dear, dear Dick. Yo-ho, my boys, said Fezziwig. No more work tonight. It's Christmas Eve. Christmas? Let's have the shutters up, cried old Fezziwig, with a sharp clap of his hands, before a man can say Jack Robinson. You wouldn't believe how those two fellows went at it. They charged into the street with the shutters, one, two, three, had them up in their places, four, five, six, barred them and pinned them, seven, eight, nine. Came back before you could have got the twelve, panting like racehorses. Helly ho, cried old Fezziwig, skipping down from the high desk with wonderful agility. Clear away, my lads, and let's have lots of room here. Helly ho, Dick. Chirp, Ebenezer. Clear away. There was nothing they wouldn't have cleaned away or couldn't have cleared away, with old Fezziwig looking on. It was done in a minute. Every movable was packed off as if it were dismissed from public life forevermore. The floor was swept and watered, the lamps were trimmed, fuel was heaped upon the fire, and the warehouse was as snug and warm and dry, and bright a ballroom as you would desire to see upon a winter's night. In came a fiddler with a music book, went up to the lofty desk and made an orchestra of it, and tuned like fifty stomachaches. In came Mrs. Fezziwig, one vast substantial smile. In came the three little Miss Fezziwigs, beaming and lovable. And in came the young six followers whose hearts they broke. In came all of the young men and women employed in the business. In came the housemaid with her cousin, the baker. In came the cook with her brother's particular friend, the milkman. In came the boy from over the way who was suspected of having not enough board from his master trying to hide himself behind the girl from next door but one, who was proved to have had her ears pulled by her mistress. In they all came, one after another, some shyly, some boldly, some gracefully, some awkwardly, some pushing, some pulling, and in they all came, anyhow and everyhow. Away they all went, twenty couple at once, hands half round and back again the other way, down the middle and up again, round and round in various stages of affectionate grouping, Old top couple always turning up the wrong place. New top couple starting off again. And as soon as they got there, all top couples at last. Not a bottom one to help them. When this result was brought about, old Fezziwig, clapping his hands to stop the dance, cried out, Well done! 
and the fiddler plunged his hot face into a pot of porter, especially provided for that purpose. But scorning rest upon his reappearance, he instantly began again, though there were no dancers left, as if the other fiddler had been carried home, exhausted on a shutter, and he were the brand new man resolved to beat him on his sight, or perish. There were more dances, and there were more forfeits, and more dances, and there was cake, and there was negus, and there was a great piece of cold roast, and there was a great piece of cold boiled, and there were mince pies and plenty of beer. The great effect of the evening came after the roast and boiled, when the fiddler, an artful dog, mind, the sort of man who knew his business better than you or I could have told it to him, struck up Sir Roger de Cloverley. Then old Fezziwig stood up out to dance with Mrs. Fezziwig, top couple too, with a good stiff piece of work cut out for them, three or four and twenty pair of partners, people who were not to be trifled with, people who would dance and had no notion of walking. But if they had been twice as many, ah, four times even, Old Fezziwig would have been a match for them, and so would Mrs. Fezziwig. As to her, she was as worthy to his partner in every sense of the term. But that's not high praise, tell me higher, and I'll use it. Positive light appeared to issue from Fezziwig's calves. They shone in every part of the dance like moons. He couldn't have predicted at any given time what would have become of them next. And when old Fezziwig and Mrs. Fezziwig had gone through all of the dance, advanced and retired, Hold hands with your partner, bow and curtsy, corkscrew, thread the needle and back again to your place. Fezziwig cut, cut so deftly that he appeared to wink with his legs and came upon his feet again without a stagger. When the clock struck eleven, this domestic ball broke up. Mr and Mrs Fezziwig took their stations, one on either side of the door, and shaking hands with every person individually as he or she went out, wishing them or her a Merry Christmas. When everybody had retired but two apprentices, they did the same to them, and thus the cheerful voices died away, and the lads were left to their beds, which were under a counter in the back shop. During this whole time, Scrooge had acted like a man out of his wits. His heart and soul were in the scene, and with his former self. He corroborated everything, remembered everything, enjoyed everything, and underwent the strangest agitation. It was not until now, when the bright faces of his former self and Dick were turned from them, that he remembered the ghost and became conscious that it was looking full upon him, while the light upon its head burnt very clear. A small matter, said the ghost, to make these silly folks so full of gratitude. Small, echoed Scrooge. The spirit signed to him to listen to the two apprentices who were pouring out their hearts in praise of Fezziwig, and when he had done so, said, Why, is it not? You spent but a few pounds of your mortal money, three or four perhaps, is that so much that he deserves this praise? It isn't that, said Scrooge, heated by the remark, and speaking unconsciously like his former and not his latter self. If it isn't that, spirit, he has the power to render us happy or unhappy, to make our service light or burdensome, a pleasure or a toil. I say that his power lies in words and looks, in things so slight and insignificant that it is impossible to add and count them up. What then? The happiness he gives is quite as great as if not to cost a fortune. He felt the spirit's glance and stopped. What's the matter? asked the ghost. Nothing particular, said Scrooge. Something, I think, the ghost insisted. No, said Scrooge. No, I should like to be able to say a word or two to my clerk just now, that's all. His former self turned down the lamps as he gave utterance to the wish. Scrooge and the ghost again stood side by side in the open air. 
My time grows short, observed the spirit. Quick. This was not addressed to Scrooge, or generally one to whom he could see, but it produced an immediate effect, for again Scrooge saw himself. He was older now, a man in the prime of his life. His face had not the harsh and rigged lines of latter years, but had begun to wear the signs of care and avarice. There was an eager, greedy, restless motion in the eye, which showed the passion that had taken root, and where the shadow of the growing tree would fall. He was not alone, but sat by the side of a fair young girl in a mourning dress, in whose eyes were the tears, who sparkled in the light that shone out of the ghost of Christmas past. It matters little, she said softly, to you, very little. Another idol has displaced me, and if it can cheer and comfort you in time to come, as I would have tried to do, I have no just cause to grieve. What idol has displaced you, you rejoined? A golden one. This is the even-handed dealing of the world, he said. There is nothing on which it is so hard as poverty, and there is nothing it professes to condemn with such severity as the pursuit of wealth. You fear the world too much, she answered gently. All your other hopes have merged into the hope of being beyond the chance of its sordid reproach. I've seen your nobler aspirations fall off one by one, until the master passion, keen, engrosses you. Have I not? What then? he retorted. Even if I have grown so much wiser, what then? I'm not changed towards you. She shook her head. Am I? Our contract is an old one. It was made when we were both poor and content to be so, until, in good season, we can improve our worldly fortune by our patient industry. You are changed. When it was made, you were another man. I was a boy, he said impatiently. Your old feeling tells you that you were not what you are, she returned. I am. That which promised happiness when we were one in heart is fraught with misery now that we are two. How often and keenly I've thought of this, I'll not say. It's enough that I have thought of it and can release you. Have I ever sought release? In words, no, never. In what then? In a changed nature, in an altered spirit, in another atmosphere of life, another hope but its great end, in everything that made my love of any worth or value in your sight. It's this that has never been between us, said the girl, looking mildly, but with steadiness upon him. Tell me. Do you seek me out and try to win me now? Ah, uh, no. He seemed to yield to the justice of this supposition, in spite of himself. But he said with a struggle, You think not. I would gladly think otherwise if I could, she answered. Heaven knows. When I have learned a truth like this, I know how strong and irresistible it must be. But if you were free today, tomorrow, yesterday, can even I believe that you would choose a dowerless girl? You who, in your very confidence with her, weigh everything by gain or choosing her, if for another moment you were false enough to your one guiding principle to do so, do I not know that your repentance and regret would surely follow? I do. And I release you. With a full heart, for the love of him you once were. He was about to speak, but with her head turned from him, she resumed. You may. The memory of what it is past half makes me hope that you will. I have pain in this. A very, very brief time and you'll dismiss the recollection of it gladly as an unprofitable dream from which it happened well when you awoke. May you be happy in the life that you have chosen. She left him, and they parted. Spirit, said Scrooge, show me no more. Conduct me home.
Why do you delight in torturing me? One shadow more, exclaimed the ghost. No more, cried Scrooge. No more. I don't wish to see it. Show me no more. But the relentless ghost pinioned him in both of his arms and forced him to observe what happened next. They were in another scene and place. A room not very large or handsome, but full of comfort. Near to the winter fire sat a beautiful young girl, so like the last that Scrooge believed it was the scene, until he saw her, now a comely matron, sitting opposite her daughter. The noise in this room was perfectly tumultuous, for there were more children there than Scrooge in his agitated state of mind could count. And unlike the celebrated herd in the poem, they were not forty children conducting themselves like one, but every child was conducting himself like forty. The consequences were uproarious beyond belief, but nobody seemed to care. On the contrary, the mother and the daughter laughed heartily and enjoyed it very much, and the latter, soon beginning to mingle in the sports, got pillaged by the young brigands most ruthlessly. What would I have not given to be one of them? Though I have never could have been so rude. No, no. I wouldn't for all the wealth of all of the world have crushed that braided hair and torn it down, and for my precious little shoe I wouldn't have plucked it off. God bless my soul, to save my life. As to measuring her waist in sport, as they did, bold young brood, I couldn't have done it. I should have expected my arm to have grown round it for a punishment, and never come straight again. And yet I should have dearly liked, I own, to have touched her lips, to have questioned her, that she might have opened them, to have looked upon the lashes of her downcast eyes and never raised a blush, to have let loose waves of her, an inch of which would be a keepsake beyond price, in short, I should have liked, I do confess, to have had the lightest license of a child, and yet been man enough to know its value. But now, knocking at the door was heard, and such a rush immediately ensured that she, with laughing face and plundered dress, was borne towards it, the centre of a flushed and boisterous group, just in time to greet the father, who came home attended by a man laden with Christmas toys and presents, and the shouting and the struggling and the onslaught that was made on the defenceless porter skilling him with chairs for ladders to dive into his pockets to spoil him of brown paper parcels held on tight by his cravat hung around him by the neck pommel his back and kick his legs with irrepressible affection the shouts of wonder and delight with which the development of every package was received the terrible announcement that the baby had been taken in the act of putting a doll's frying pan into his mouth and was more than suspected of having swallowed a fictitious turkey glued on a wooden platter the immense relief of finding that this was a false alarm. The joy and gratitude and ecstasy. They're all indescribable alike. It is enough by the degrees the children and their emotions got out of the parlour, and by one started time up to the top of the house, where they went to bed and so subsided. And now Scrooge looked on more attentively than ever, when the master of the house, having his daughter leaning fondly on him, sat down with her and her mother at his own fireside, and when he thought that such another creature, quite as graceful and as full as promise, might have called him father. And being at a springtime in the haggard winter of his life, his sight grew very dim indeed. Bell, said the husband, turning to his wife with a smile. Some old friend of yours this afternoon. Who was it? Guess. How can I? Ah, I don't know, she added in the same breath, laughing as she laughed. Mr. Scrooge. Mr. Scrooge it was, had passed his office window, and it was not shut up, and he had a candle inside. He could scarcely help seeing him. 
His partner lies upon the point of death, I hear. And there he sat quite alone. Quite alone in the world, I do believe. Spirit, said Scrooge in a broken voice, please remove me from this place. I told you that these were the shadows of things that have been, said the ghost. That they are what they are, do not blame me. Remove me, Scrooge exclaimed, I cannot bear it. He turned upon the ghost and seeing that it looked upon him with a face and some strange way that there were fragments of all of the faces that had shown him. Wrestled with it. Leave me. Take me back. Haunt me no longer. In the struggle, if that can be called a struggle, in which the ghost with no visible resistance on its own part was undisturbed by any effort of its adversary, Scrooge observed that in its light was burning high and bright, dimly connecting with that influence over him. He seized the extinguisher cap, and by a sudden action pressed it down upon its head. The spirit dropped beneath it, so the distinguisher covered its full form. But though Scrooge pressed it down with all of his force, he could not hide the light, streamed from under it, or in a broken flood under the ground. He was conscious of being exhausted and overcome by an irresistible drowsiness, and further, of being in his own bedroom. He gave the cat a parting squeeze, in which his hand relaxed, and had barely time to heal the bed, before he sank into a heavy sleep. And that's where we'll leave things this evening, I think. Scrooge aware of his coldness in the face of the warmth of those he left behind. I think we can all relate to knowing the joys of our youth, our memories, our past, and knowing that we've left some of the innocence behind as we grew older. I'm sure you know this tale, my friend, and we both know that the harsh realities of the present and the Christmases yet to come are both waiting to appear. But we'll ask them to wait a little. Fire pit goes low, and the night's making my eyes heavy. I hope that your past, whatever it may look like, is kind to you. Good night, and sleep well, my friend. You deserve it. <laughs>